Have you ever felt trapped in a high-paying job, chained to a life that's slowly slipping away? Day after day, the same routine, the same unfulfilling work, and the constant longing for something more? If you're nodding your head right now, feeling that weight on your shoulders, then this is the podcast you've been waiting for. Welcome to the W2 Prison Break Show. I'm Brian O'Neill, and I'm here to tell you that you're not alone. I've been in that prison too, sacrificing precious moments with my family, feeling the regret and resentment build up inside. But guess what? There is a way out, and together we're going to break free. Each episode, we'll dive deep into the stories of incredible individuals who have successfully made their escape, who have turned their dreams into reality, and who now live lives filled with purpose, joy, and abundance. But we won't stop at inspiration alone. We'll equip you with the tools, strategies, and mindset shifts needed to break through the barriers that have held you back for far too long. Together, we'll ignite your entrepreneurial spirit and unleash the business genius within you. It's time to take action, to shatter the chains that bind you, and to embrace a future filled with unlimited possibilities. The W2 Prison Break Show is your key to unlock the door to a life of purpose, fulfillment, and success. I invite you to join me on this transformative journey. Subscribe now to the W2 Prison Break Show and let's embark together on the path to freedom. Remember, it's never too late to break free and live the life you've always dreamed of. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Have you been asking, should I buy a house right now or should I wait until next year or 2025 or when interest rates go down or when are they going to go down? If this is something that you've been thinking about, this is the episode for you. We're going to answer this question today. I brought on an expert. He does loans and mortgages. His name is Mike Mills, and we are going to dive into this exact topic. And by the end of the episode, you are going to know whether or not you should buy a house now. Let's not wait another minute. Let's get straight to the episode. Mike, welcome to the W2 Prison Break Show. I'm looking forward to having you on and having a good conversation today. Yeah, I'm excited, Brian. Thanks for having me, man. You bet. Uh, We met through a mutual friend and he was on your podcast, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. So I just, I love the power of networking and here we are, you're on my show. So that's awesome. The podcast world is very reciprocal, right? We want to talk to people and just have good conversations. It's a great way to meet people and you know, learn a bunch of stuff. So I love this kind of stuff. It's my favorite thing. I agree. Absolutely. And I'm definitely envious of your setup here. It's making me rethink <laughs> my, my podcast game here. But hey, I like your, I think your camera might be better than mine though. You got the backlighting in there. I think it looks good. I'm a fan myself. I always like seeing other people's setup because it's like, oh, what can I do from that a little bit different? How can I tweak it? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. So Mike, before we get into, I got some really good questions to ask you today. I think that the listeners are really, really going to love your insight because I'm curious to hear it. But tell us just a little bit about what you're doing, you know, how you got here and before we dive into the topics today. Yeah, for sure. So I've been a mortgage banker for going on 13 years now. I did a million other things before I got to this point. I owned a restaurant for seven years. I taught swim lessons to kids and ran a swim school. I worked on a cruise ship. Like I've done just about everything you can imagine and just kind of fell into mortgages. Like most people that do mortgages, it wasn't something that I was like dreaming of one day, uh, just kind of happened and have been doing it ever since. Uh, I've had, you know, I will say as a mortgage banker, the reason I enjoy the job the most is I have an immense amount of freedom. It's a kill what you eat business. So if I, uh, get loans and sell loans, then I'm going to make money. And if I don't, then I won't. So I joke with my insurance buddies because 
they have what's called residual income, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And, you know, they do a policy and then that policy renews. They got to work a little bit, but don't get me wrong. You do insurance the first five years to seven years is a grind and you got to work your butt off. But after that, if you want to, you can kind of put it on easy street a little bit sometimes. But for us as mortgage professionals and real estate agents and anybody in our industry, every month we start at zero. And so there's a constant hustle to try to find new ways, get new customers, meet new people. That's just something that's a part of our business, but that also allows for an immense amount of freedom. So, you know, I have two kids and a wife and my daughter's in high school. My son's in junior high. They play a lot of sports. Ever since they were little, I coached them and everything. So I had a lot of flexibility to go to games. And for me, my quality of life has always been very important to me as far as the time I get to spend with my family. And so doing a job like this in the real estate industry as a whole gives you that freedom. So I'm not bound to a desk. I'm not bound to showing up from a nine to five gig. Sometimes I work on the weekends. Sometimes I work in the evening. Sometimes I work early in the mornings. It just depends, you know? So that's the thing that I really, really love about what I do. And as part of that, you know, we've all kind of tried to find ways over the last, let's call it two years to kind of reinvent ourselves a little bit in the business because as far as mortgage professionals and real estate professionals were concerned, we were existing in a world where you would get, I mean, you just wake up and people are calling you to do a loan. There wasn't a whole lot of time and effort you had to put into generating business. It would just show up. And, you know, obviously if anybody's in the world, <laughs> they know that that's changed the last 12 to 18 months. Yeah. So we got to kind of find new ways to reach new people and touch with our audience and try to find business wherever we can. And so one of the things that I've done, I've never participated heavily on social media. You know, I would flip through, I was kind of a casual viewer, but I was never really super engaged. And so I was trying to find something that I knew the importance of it. One of the things I say all the time is time is the most democratic thing on the planet. We all get 24 hours in a day and whatever you do with that 24 hours sets you apart from everybody else and determines your success. And so I knew I had to stay in front of as many people as possible to remind agents and buyers and buyers that I worked with in the past to think of me because whenever they want to buy a home, because the opportunities were so less frequent now than they were previously. So I really enjoy talking to people. I love learning stuff. You know, I watch... YouTube videos all day long. When I do housework or mow my yard, I'm listening to podcasts 24 seven. Like that's just how I consume media. Yeah. And so I thought I'd start a podcast and just talk about real estate. And I'm sure just like your journey to a certain extent, if you went back and looked at my, I've done this week's going to be 61. And if you went back to number one through probably five or six, you know, maybe 10, they were a little rough, you know, it didn't look great, but it's a craft like anything else. And you kind of learn how to do it and figure out what works and what doesn't. And you get better at asking questions and coming up with topics and promotion and all that stuff. So it's been something that I could use to put myself out there on social media. So we were, cause I, you know, obviously it's YouTube and Facebook live and all that stuff, but then not have to stand in front of a house and dance and point at stuff as it went down with me. It's just not my bag. You know what I mean? So you just got to find the avenue that suits your personality, that suits what you do to where you can constantly try to stay in front of people as much as possible. And the podcast has been an avenue for that for me. So fits really well with my business of doing home loans and then staying in front of people all day long. So that's what I'm doing these days. I think that's super smart. If you have a business and you're not on social media, I mean, I think podcasting is great. You're missing out. You really are missing out. So good on you for doing that. I'm about, we're about the same number of podcasts. I think I'm maybe a few more, but yeah, it's reps. Like the first one is like, man, I can't believe I sounded that way. And then you get better and better, but that's true to anything that you're starting. Like you're not going to be the best right away. Right. Yeah. It's funny. You know, I think in any journey like this kind of thing is 
I talk to my kids often because, you know, my daughter's getting ready to go to college here pretty soon. And so we talk about college a lot and I'm asking her, you know, what do you want to do? What do you think? And she's like, I'm 15. I have no idea. I'm like, I, look, I understand that you're not going to have the answers to all of the life's questions. Like I'm 45 almost, and I still don't exactly know what I want to do for the rest of my life. Right. But you have to put your head in that place to where you're constantly figuring out what the next step is, how you can grow, what you can develop, because it's never a destination. It's a journey, right? The path of getting there is the fun of it. You know, it's like once you achieve something, then you're just on to the next thing. So if you live in this world of, well, if I just do these things, I'll get here and then I'll be done. It's like, you know, retirement, right? Everybody's like, oh, I can't wait till I retire. I'm like, well, okay, but what are you going to do? Like, you're just going to play golf every day for eight hours. I mean, you're going to go crazy, you know, or you're going to sit on a beach every, I mean, at some point, you have to have a purpose to get out of bed. And I don't think life never ends until you lose that purpose. And then at that point, you're probably dead. So, you know, you just got to keep churning and keep finding new things and keep trying. So that's what well I said. To. Well said. I love that we were literally having this discussion with our son the other day because he's 12 and the pressure that they put on children to know what you're supposed to do for the rest of your life is just insanity. Like, how are you supposed to know that? But you got to look, you know what I yeah. mean? You got to be in search constantly of what that thing is. And sometimes you try stuff and it doesn't work. And then you try the next thing, but you always got to be in search of it. And that's what I try to tell my kids. I love it. I love your insight on the destination. Okay. So the pressing question, we got a, a loan officer here, knows the business well. And the pressing question is, I get it asked all the time. It's getting to the point where I don't really know how to answer it anymore is, should I buy a house right now or should I wait? Yes. So it's a complicated question, unfortunately, because, and it's a difficult one because the answer is always yes, right? For me, I always tell people, address the elephant in the room. I do loans, I do mortgages. Obviously, I want people to buy a house and I think they should. Okay. So <laughs> get that out of the way. At the same time, history has judged. And if you look at the chart for real estate, going back as far as you want to go, okay, it's always like this. And I can say always with a very good amount of confidence because are there going to be periods of time, one year, two year, three years, where there's troughs, you know, where things are up and then they come down a little bit? Yes, that happens all the way. The chart is in a straight line. It kind of goes like this, right? But it's always going up because, you know, it's the Mark Twain quote, right? You know, buy real estate, they're not making more of it. People have to have a place to live. This is how our society is put together. So you need to have a home. And the question is, are you going to own that home or are you going to rent that home or, you know, a place to stay, whatever you want to call it. And historically in the United States, the path to wealth has always been real estate. And if you look at, you know, I think I read something the other day, it's like 95% of the millionaires in the U S have some level of their start involved in real estate. I mean, the former president of our country, whatever you think about him, Donald Trump, his entire wealth was built from real estate or, you know, most of it. So it's one of those things where should you buy real estate? Yes, absolutely. The question today is, can you buy real estate, right? That's the issue. And that's the problem that we're running into right now as an industry. I mean, this is a unique spot for us because as the real estate industry, we went from, again, one of the highest performing, busiest times in the history of the industry. I mean, it's never been like that. And my wife's a realtor, actually. And so we were both in the business. And I was telling her at that time, you know, because you do have a little perspective when you've been in the job for a while. But I was telling her at the time, I was like, look, if we have to save our money right now, because this is awesome and this is great and it's humming along, but it's not going to stay like this. It's going to come back down. And it's just a matter of how much and how long. And that's in the place that we're at right now. And the 
problem is, is that there was this expectation that home prices, when the market did start to crater, were also going to come down, right? So we were going to see this big spike that jumped up because money was so cheap to borrow. And if you're borrowing money at next to zero, you know, everybody's going to get involved with that. And then all of a sudden we see that the rates go way up. The cost of borrowing is significantly increased. So everybody just said, well, well, of course, if you can't get a loan to buy a home, the demand's going to go down. Therefore, prices are going to fall, right? And for a short amount of time, that was true. But we're still talking two or 3%, you know, it wasn't 10, it wasn't 15. If people go back to 2008, when the real financial crisis occurred, that was strictly, or I should say directly correlated to mortgages in real estate, because that's what kind of caused the problem, right? When that happened, California was one of the states that got hit the hardest. And I think, you know, I don't have the number exact. I want to say they lost something like 20 to 25% of their value in real estate that year. So if you had a house that was worth a million dollars in San Francisco, it was worth $800,000 at the end of the crash, right? And they had issues because of the way they did their loans. They let people borrow above the value and all those things. But if you were to go back three or four years, maybe not right this second, but if you were to go back three or four years from now, that $800,000 house was selling for $2 million, okay? So yeah, it lost 20% for three or four years or whatever the case would have been, but it jumped way back up right after that, right? So the problem that we have right now is that Across the country, real estate is too expensive. And the average American who has a double income household, mom and dad work, they have typical debt, which I would say one or two car payments. A lot of people have student loans, which is a whole other thing that's going to cause issues here soon. All of those things and credit cards, which is again another thing, you know, we're the highest credit card debt we've ever had as a country. It's very, very difficult to buy a three or four hundred thousand dollar house. Like in that these days, in, in my market, I'm in Dallas Fort Worth. There's not a whole lot of houses with a two in front of them. There just isn't. You know, there's a few. And if you want to get out further, you can. So the bigger issue isn't should you buy a home? It's can you buy a home? And that's the thing that I fear in the long term for our industry is that there isn't some solutions. And I don't know exactly what those are yet, but if there isn't some solutions to make housing more affordable or make incentivize builders to build more affordable housing, then we're going to be in this situation for a while, which just means real estate's going to continue to go like that. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, whether I can you, because we definitely have an affordability crisis in this country right now. Yep. It's not just housing, it's everything. everything. You, I mean, I, when was the last time you looked at what you paid for food, right? Or gas or, you know, stuff that we take for granted. It's like, wow, it costs that much now. I used to be able to get this for $5 and now it's double. So it doesn't sound like we have a solution yet, but I think a lot of people are waiting around. Maybe yes. for rates to come down or prices to come down, which I have never been a big fan of. I don't think we should be waiting for stuff to happen. There's still good deals out there. Sure. It's just a matter of finding them and then again, buying the right type of property. Again, there's not a lot of twos out there, but you still can buy a home. I mean, what are some of the things that you're, the conversations that you're having with your prospective home buyers? Like what tips or advice would you give them or do you give them? in terms of maybe how to be able to afford the property? Well, we have a kind of a good and bad thing, I guess it just depends on how you look at it. But with COVID and what happened there, a lot of expectations for employees has changed, right? I think there are some large companies that are trying to flip this back, but I don't know that they're having a lot of success with it, which is the expectation now is that most jobs, not all, but a lot of jobs can be done from home. 
right? You don't have to show up to an office to do your job in a lot of cases, especially with the advent of things like Zoom and the internet obviously allows for a lot of communication that it doesn't necessarily have to be in person. So I think there's a little bit lost in the whole environment of being in an office and all that kind of stuff. So that's a whole other thing. But what that does allow is that the homeowner now does not have to live in proximity to where they work. Okay. So if you want to find a cheaper house, more often than not, you got to get out of the city a little bit. Yeah. You know, you got to get out to a little bit of land. And again, I live in Texas and we have a lot of land. So if you want to go, you know, an hour and a half outside Dallas, Fort Worth, you can find some really, really good deals on real estate. I have a friend of mine who's a realtor who is also a developer and has been buying investment properties for years. And he, young guy, he's younger than me, he's in his late thirties. He has, you know, at this point he says, he calls them doors. I think he's got, I want to say somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 doors. He's got a couple of apartment complexes and whatnot, but his niche is he's going to little towns outside of Dallas, Fort Worth. He's finding homes for $60,000, $70,000 and renovating them a little bit. Not much, you know, he's not like turning it into a mansion, but he's making it an affordable property and turning around and selling it for 150, $175, $200,000 in these little small towns. And so I think, you know, there's a real opportunity there because more and more people, I think overall are going to be leaving the big metroplexes and cities that want to own property at least, and going to be moving out to more countrified areas, whatever you want to call it. So I think there's a real opportunity there. The other thing is when interest rates are high, you know, this is a, what is this? A Warren Buffett thing, right? Where when everybody else is doing this, you should be doing this, right? And when everybody else is buying, you should probably be selling. When everybody else is selling, you should probably be buying. Well, right now, there are plenty of homes that are out there. Now, price points are still high, but there are plenty of homes out there that need to be sold for whatever reason, right? People still have to sell their house. They got to move to go to work. They got to relocate for schools, whatever. So if a house has been on the market for any decent amount of time, a month, two months, something like that, well, there's a very good chance you can get a pretty good deal on that house, right? Because if somebody's selling right now, that means they're either having to buy to go somewhere else or they're going to be renting. And either way, the seller's not in the best spot, right? Because they have two choices that they don't really want to make. And so as the buyer, you're in a little bit more of a better position. So I can go into that house and I can offer less. Or what I suggest more often than not is if the house is listed for say 300,000 and it's been on the market for two months, instead of going in there and offering 290, I would offer 300 and I would ask the seller to pay me 10,000 in concessions. Okay. Because in that circumstance, now I can either apply that cash, which is of great need right now for a lot of people. I can apply that to all my closing costs and not have to pay any of them. Or if you want to, you can even buy down your interest rate and get that cheaper to make your payment less. Right now, personally, my personal opinion is I would use that cash to pay for my closing costs. I wouldn't use it to buy down the rate, but that's only because in my personal opinion, again, I think interest rates will be coming back down in the next 12 to 24 months. And that money is going to serve you better by waiting and paying a little bit higher payment until rates come down, but saving all of your cash that you otherwise would have had to pay out of pocket for your closing costs. Hey there, back to the episode in just a moment. Are you a homeowner in the Chicagoland area who's struggling to sell your home or even own nothing and looking to maximize your price before the market slides? Are you tired of the traditional home selling process that takes months and costs you thousands in fees and repairs? Whether you're facing foreclosure, going through a divorce, or simply need to sell your home fast, WeBuyHousesChicago.org can help. We've been buying homes in Chicago since 2019, 
and we specialize in helping sellers who are stuck. Unlike traditional real estate buyers, we buy homes as is and can close in as little as seven days. No repairs, no inspections, and no fees. Just a fast, hassle-free sale. Let WeBuyHousesChicago.org help you sell your home and move on to the next phase of your life. Call or text us today at 312-500-6121. If you know someone who is struggling to sell their home or simply just wants top price, please share this message with them. As a listener of the W2 Prison Break Show, WeBuyHouseOfChicago.org will pay you for your referral. If you send us a referral and we buy their house, we will pay you a $1,000 referral fee. Simply have your referral mentioned, the W2 Prison Break Show. Let's get back to the show. I like that strategy a lot. And we're from the same school of thought here, you know, because if you talk to, I know your wife's an agent, if you talk to agents and heck, a lot of mortgage brokers, like demand of supply is so low, demand so high. It's like, but the buyers can't qualify. So the buyers are having a hard time qualifying, then all that demand, all that low supply doesn't really make any difference. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but if sellers who need to sell still got to move. Yes. Yes. I mean, I do, there is a short supply and that's really what's causing the high rates doing nothing, but making people that want to buy not be able to buy, but it's not really what's, I don't think what's really ultimately affecting the reason that the prices are, because you know, it's the supply and demand, right? If the demand is low, then you should get lower prices, right? Well, the demand is kind of low right now because rates are high. People are having a hard time qualifying. So there isn't a ton of demand. I mean, just recently, if you look at, uh, I think the report came out for almost the first part of August or end of July, mortgage applications are down like 30%. I mean, they're way down from last year. Uh, it may have been 50% from last year, but the reason that home prices are staying elevated and not coming down is because there hasn't been a ton of, there aren't a ton of homes. And so you don't have a lot of choices. It doesn't mean there aren't homes for sale. It just means there aren't as many options, right? So, and houses are going like there's a town where I live that's in North Dallas. It's called McKinney. And I have a client who's been looking for homes up there. She's literally made, I want to say 10 to 15 offers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Over list price. She's putting down her last three. She told him she was going to give him $20,000 in earnest money. Okay. Which is just massive. And these are four, five, $600,000 homes. Okay. And paying all the clothes, not asking for anything. She's lost every single one. Okay. Because there are pockets of the country and places where demand is incredibly high. So it's like, yes, there are homes for sale, but they may not be the home you want to buy or that's in high demand. So there is a shortage of inventory and that's what's causing home prices to stay elevated, but it doesn't mean that you can't find deals. It just means that, you know, they're not growing on trees and you got to think outside the box a little bit to find something that can work. Right. And you gave some great tips on how to do that. And yes, pockets of the country, because every time I hear that, it's like, not here, not here, not here. It's they, And that same exact scenario exists. Yeah. Well, if you're on the West Coast, you know, for example, like if you're in California right now, San Francisco, Los Angeles, home prices are down, I think, 20, 25%, you know, across the board over there, because there's a million reasons why. But, you know, I don't want to offend anybody from California, but, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that's going on. But that's what's happening there. Whereas in my market, like Texas, because we are in such a high demand, we have this, I think, if not the first, the second highest migration rate in the country right now from other states. So our real estate demand is very high. You know, it's not low. And again, if you want to go live an hour and a half away from the nearest Walmart, you can find a good deal. You're just going to have to drive, go get your supplies for the month. 
Yeah, which is if that gets you to, into a house, you got to make those decisions or you're going to rent. So, yes. you know, which do you prefer? I, we're talking a lot about the market. Uh, I'm not asking you to make any prediction. I'm just asking you what you think, right? Because I don't know either. And I'm not going to pretend that I know. Where do you think rates are headed, first and foremost, and when? And I agree with you. They used to be much, you know, I remember I talked to my parents, you know, like, how about when I bought my house and it was 19%, right? So where do you think they're headed potentially? And then what is your overall feeling about what might happen to the housing market, you know, in the next year, 18 months or so? So real quick on the, I love the rates used to be 18%. So that is true. They were for a period of time. The only difference was, is that they were paying 18% on a $90,000 house. Or 60, and right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And now you're paying 8% on a $500,000 house. So it's a little different, but yeah, it is true. But what that does tell you, and I'm going to get a t-shirt made on this that says, you know, I tell people all the time, interest rates are a function of time. They're not a function of money. Okay. Because if you have a credit card with the 20% interest rate, all right, and you have $50,000 balance on it every month, but you pay it off every single month, you're not paying any interest, okay? It doesn't matter what the rate is because you're paying that card off every month, okay? So if you have a home with a 7% interest, right? You're financed over 30 years. That's a lot of money, right? Are you gonna pay 7% for the next 30 years? No, very unlikely that you will. The average mortgage in the United States, I think right now is like eight to 10 years, somewhere in that neighborhood, okay? And rates are changing every two or three years. So it's very likely within the next couple of years that the rates are going to come down. So where are they going to go? When's that going to happen? Well, it's good and bad news. The good news is, is that I do believe rates will come down because they literally have to. If you look at government spending, okay, so we've spent more in the last 12 months and almost doubled our national debt ever since this cap on the debt ceiling thing happened. But a big chunk of that is the interest that we're having to pay on our government debt. Well, that's directly correlated to what the Fed's done with interest rates, okay? So the federal government really needs rates to come down or things are going to get really out of whack, okay? So that's number one. At some point, this can't go on forever, and they know that, right? Second thing is, is that all of these high rates and all this constricted lending has done exactly what the expected effect of it was, which is it has contracted our economy. As we kind of talked a little bit about before I came on here, you know, I will admit I'm whatever you call it. I'm a little bit of not a conspiracy theorist, but certainly like, I'm always like, is that really what's going on? So the job numbers that we keep seeing, and obviously in my world, jobs make a big deal because that tells us where the market's headed. People are going to work. They're going to be able to buy homes, you know, or that's how the Fed is making decisions on interest rates. Well, just for over the last six months, if you look at job data, when it comes out, I think it comes out usually like the second week of every month or first week, the BLS reports, they've said, okay, we added 300,000 jobs. All right. Everybody's like, yeah, economy's still strong. Job market's still great, blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, then the next month they come out and say, oh, we added 200,000. It's less, but it's still adding jobs. Mm-hmm. But then the part that everybody misses is that there's a little headline underneath it that says, oh, and last month's jobs were revised down 200,000. So we really only added a hundred, not 300. Yeah. Right. But that isn't reported as much. That's not out there as much because it's just a number that's revised. They do this all the time. I mean, it's not just this administration. It's not just, I mean, it's done for into perpetuity because they go down and try to figure out what they missed and what they don't. And what they've, a lot of the losses have come because you have people working part-time jobs. You have people working two jobs, you know, all of this stuff that's going on. Well, it's underreported. So the economy is contracting whether or not Wall Street or the MSNBC or Fox wants to admit it, it's happening, right? So- As the market starts to contract, then 
everything tightens down. Labor market contracts, money moving contracts. Well, we don't want to do that forever because we want our economy to thrive and keep plumbing along. And so they needed to get to a certain point to get inflation under control. And then they can start pivoting on whether or not they're going to cut rates or pause the hikes or whatever. So when that happens, when the Fed decides, okay, we're going to pause, okay, that generally means we're headed in the recession direction. And when they cut rates, okay, it takes a while because that's usually when we're kind of getting to the bottom of things really bad in the economy overall. And that's when you start to see interest rates in general fall. Well, mortgage rates aren't directly tied to what the Fed does. It's kind of a misconception a lot of general consumers have is that when the Fed raises rates, mortgage rates go up. Well, that's not really true. Mortgage-backed securities is what controls interest rates for mortgages, and it's a bond, and it's a safe bond because you're basically betting, if you've ever seen the big short, you're betting on people to pay their mortgage. And by the way, foreclosure rates right now are next to zero. So nobody's missing house payments, not yet. You know, everything's good. So when you move your money into mortgage bonds, you're betting on a safe bet, okay? When I put my money in the stock market, I'm gambling a little more. So when the market starts to contract and things get tight, people pull their money out of the stock market because it's too risky and they put it into the bond market because it's safer, okay? So people move their money over to things like mortgage-backed securities. And when the demand for mortgage-backed securities go up, mortgage rates go down, okay? So that's kind of the mechanism on how that works, what drives mortgage rates. So all that long way to say, when we start moving towards recession, when it's acknowledged, when that starts happening, you start seeing the stock market fall, that's when you're going to see mortgage rates start coming down. Okay. So it's good and bad. <laughs> when everybody else is suffering, mortgage rates are going to get better. So all the people that have bought a home over the last year or two, they're going to be able to refinance. Anybody that has equity, that'll be a big player when this does actually happen because there's so much home equity that people have right now that they're going to start tapping that and pulling that back out. It's an easier pill to swallow to go from 3% to 5% versus 3% to 8% or 7%. That's a harder thing to do. So I think that you'll start to see all of this start unfolding. If everything stays kind of as it's going right now and there isn't anything crazy that happens, I think towards the end of next summer into the fall is when you'll start really seeing mortgage rates start ticking back down because you're still going to have the summer housing, not frenzy, of course, but just the housing market that's typical in the summertime where it's just a little more activity. So I don't think you're going to see it necessarily then. The one caveat to that is if something breaks and I don't necessarily put it out of the realm of possibilities that something's going to break. We've got real issues with commercial lending right now on commercial properties because a lot of these are resetting over the next couple of years, going from 3% to 9% or 12 or whatever it is. There's some concern there because regional banks hold a lot of those loans. And then student loan payments are going to start up again in October. That pause has been there for three years and that's about to kick on. So your average student loan holder is going to go from paying nothing to paying 300 bucks a month for their student loans to not go delinquent. So that could be an issue. Credit card debt's pretty high right now. Interest rates on those are high. So there could be something that triggers the economy to tip in the wrong direction. It's not going to be housing, but it could be something. And if that happens, then you'll see rates go down sooner than what I said. Got it. Well thought out and well said. And I appreciate the education on the correlation between mortgage rates and what the Fed does. Because yeah. I think a lot of people assume that they're directly related. No. And you know anybody out there that wants rates to get back to 2 to 3 oh, it'll get to 2 to 3%. I don't see a world in which that happens. I really don't because that was artificial. When the Fed did have impact on mortgage rates, the way that they do is they were a big buyer of mortgage-backed securities. 
So instead of changing the rates, they were buying up all of these mortgage bonds, which was driving rates down low because they wanted to stimulate people borrowing and moving through housing or whatever. But that also is what got us to seven, eight, nine percent <laughs> inflation. I don't see that happening anytime in the near future, but I don't think four or five percent is unreasonable. I think that's a place we could easily get to in the next 12 to 24 months. Awesome. Mike, tell us about your podcast. You talked about it earlier, but we didn't get the name of it. You're wearing the shirt. For those who are oh, yes. watching on YouTube, Texas. he's wearing the shirt. There we go. I got it on here. The Texas Real Estate and Finance Podcast. So I've been doing it now for not quite a full year because there was a period where I was kind of on and off. And when I've really started kind of pushing it out there, it's been about a year, but it's, man, I enjoy it. I really do. You know, it's kind of a double thing. I talk to realtors in my area and bring them in and we chat about the market in our area and I give them, you know, it's always cool to look, you got the headphones, you got the microphone, you look like you know what you're talking about. You know, it's a neat little avenue and it gives people a certain amount of credibility when they see them online, being interviewed by somebody. And that's kind of why we do it here. But that's a big piece of, I get to make new relationships with agents in my area. And then I also can take, cause I usually do mine for about an hour. I will take out content and clip it out into short little one minute videos, three minute videos for YouTube, because most people aren't going to sit on YouTube and watch somebody talk for an hour. I mean, it's just not, unless you're Joe Rogan or whatever, that's probably not going to happen. Yep. So the little pieces of content that you put out there that drive people to check it out for a period of time, I've really seen a big uptick in my downloads on like Spotify and Apple since I started doing that. Cause it's kind of, a, which I'm sure you've experienced. It's like, all right, how do I do this thing? How do I get guests? All right. Well, then you kind of solve that problem a little bit. And you're like, all right, what am I going to talk about? And what's my format look like? And how do I invite them? And what's the process? And so you go through that. And then once you get that down, you're like, all right, now I got to do it every week and you got to do that. And so there's steps to all this. And then you get to a point where, okay, I'm doing it consistently. I have guests. I feel pretty confident what we're talking about. Now I got to get people to pay attention. And then you get into the marketing side of it a little bit. And how do I promote clips and get stuff out there? And so the hard part is, is when it comes to podcasting, at least because just like anything else, when I want to do it, I, I kind of engross myself in education on it as much as possible. But to have quicker success, you really need to be pretty focused on your topic, right? This is what I'm going to talk about. And I don't get too broad on it. Yep. So for me, it's real estate and finance. Obviously, I'm a mortgage person dealing real estate all day long. And I'm in Texas. So even when I was looking up names, right, it was like, oh, you can call it this, you can call it that. And it was like, well, why don't you just call it what it is? What are you talking about? So I was like, all right, I'm in Texas. I'm going to talk about real estate and finance. All right, great. There you go. So really simple. So it's easy to search, easy to find. But I do like a lot of other stuff. And so sometimes you got to kind of mix in what you can, when you can for just your own personal entertainment, you know, and I've talked to nutritionists, I've talked to yoga instructors, I've talked to jujitsu instructors, talked to wealth advice, like just a lot of things that I coaches, you know, baseball, youth coaches, because I've lived in that world for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So it gives me a chance to like have real conversations with people. I don't know about you, Brian, but like if you put me in a networking group or a happy hour, I'm terrible at that stuff. I'll find one person that I can chat to and I'll go sit in the corner with them for an hour. I'm not going to like meet strangers all day long. I'm just bad at it. Yeah. But I can find somebody, find commonality with them find out who they are, ask them questions. I'm a very curious person. And so it's worked out really well and I enjoy it. And that's the biggest thing is, you know, when we started this thing about social media, if you're going to do social media and you feel like it's important, which it is, then you really, really need to find something that you will do and that you like to do. So that way you stay consistent with it. Because the thing about social media is it's a long game. It's not a short game. You're not going to make one video and go viral and you get 50,000 people calling you elites. That ain't how it works. You're going to have to do it for years and get consistent and get good at it. And then it'll start to bear fruit. 
but you have to have patience. And a big part of that is you have to find something that you love to do. I really like doing this. Yeah, absolutely. And I can tell that you like doing it and you're really good at it. So plus you have an awesome sign that I'm, <laughs> That's right. that I'm envious I think it's a sign. Of. It's very important. It's very important. Well, problem yeah. is, is, as my wife would tell you, is I talk too damn much. And, you know, as you're experiencing right now, I, I never am a lack for things to say. So, well, you kind of have to be to be a podcaster. Honestly, you have to be able to speak and to be a guest. But I definitely share some of the same challenges as you do. You know, you have to be focused and consistent and make sure that you're finding quality guests and being staying the course because it's almost like a job, right? Yes. Being a podcast is almost like another job. I mean, it is. we're doing this recording, but a lot is happening behind the scenes to get it to the point where it's like, okay, you're starting to gain traction and momentum. And I always talk to people about, we all have a podcast in them. Like whenever I hear people talk about a conversation, I'm like, you guys should make a podcast about that. That's funny or that's entertaining. And yeah. then it's like, how would I even do that? I'm like this thing right here. And I'm holding up my cell phone, which is you know, some people have just started podcasts on their cell phone. It's not that well, you different. don't realize, and that's the thing I don't think people understand with it is, and I didn't know it really until the, like the last five years is I heard about, oh, this person has a podcast. I listen to Joe Rogan all the time. I listen to Andrew Huberman. I listen to Lex Friedman. There's a lot of guys that I enjoy because it's stimulating conversation. Yeah. And I think people don't understand or miss out. Like, it's kind of like as a kid, maybe it was ingrained in me, but as a kid, I wasn't an only child, but I was certainly the oldest of all of my siblings by a pretty significant margin. Yeah. And so when we would have family dinners, which we did as a big, and I have a relatively decent sized family, I was sitting at the table with the adults most of the time, because there wasn't really a kid's table because I'm like nine and I'm the only kid there, right? So I'm sitting there, they're talking about everything. They're talking about politics, they're talking about money, they're talking about news, whatever. And as a kid, I didn't have a choice. So I was just sitting there and I was just listening and I became fascinated to listening to other people talk about stuff that I didn't know or understand because you just pick up so much. And so as an adult, when I really got into my Zen for me personally is I mow my house. I have about three acres and you know I don't walk three acres pushing a mower, but I have a zero turn mower that I ride, but it takes me about three hours to mow my yard you know, and I don't pay somebody to do it because I like it. So I get on my mower, I put my headphones in, and I listen to a three hour or three hours worth of podcast, essentially, or if I'm working out or doing whatever, like I'm always listening to podcasts because that's when I take in all the information. And I think if you ever had a thought of maybe this is something that you would like to do, A, I really encourage it. And B, I would say, well, just start listening to other podcasts because you pick up so much and you also realize that, oh, this is actually something that people like, you know what I mean? And I use Rogan as an example, just because he's the most famous of it. The man does a three-hour podcast and talks to neuroscientists about brain implants, okay? And he gets 10 million people, okay? So there's a market for it. You just have to be entertaining, have you know good topics, and it doesn't happen in a day. It takes time. I mean, we're never going to be Joe Rogan, but I'm just saying that you can find your niche and you can get there, but it isn't going to happen overnight. And you just have to do it from a place of passion and not a place of how do I make money or do whatever? Because that's not going to get you what you want. That's great advice. I mean, seriously, no, we're not all going to be Joe Rogan. And he's been working at it for his whole life. I mean, yeah, he's done like 1,500 or 2,000 pockets. I mean, it's he's done insane amount. Yeah. You know, so, but and he was already famous before that. It's I mean, the guy was on TV. So it's like he's been, yeah. this isn't, he's not an overnight success. This has been yeah. happening for decades. Well, there's a guy that I follow on YouTube and I always use him as an example. And one of these days I've tried to reach out to have him on, but his YouTube channel is called Real Clear Tax, or I would butcher it, but it's like Real Clear Tax Value. And he's a CPA. He's based out of California. 
And he, I love it, but he literally has a piece of paper that he holds in front of him. Okay. And he reads it or doesn't read it, but it's like bullet points. And he's like, he talks about the economy and finance and all the stuff, same stuff that I do. And I get a lot of stuff from him and he'll say something and he'll kind of turn the page and you hear it, you know, and it's like there he's real mundane. There's not a lot of energy from him. You know, he's kind of almost joked that he's kind of put out about doing, he's like, I told you guys that the bond market was going to be lower than it was. And, you know, I said that last month, but you don't have to listen to me. I'm just trying to give you information. You know, it's just, it cracks me up, but he stands in front of a white wall. He wears a white shirt and he wears a red tie or blue. He's got a different color tie. Sometimes that's it. There's nothing fancy, nothing about it. Right. The man has over like 600,000 subscribers to his YouTube channel. He's been doing it for like five years. Okay. Got 600,000 subscribers to his YouTube channel. And he has, you know what Patreon is? Are you familiar with Patreon? Yes. Okay. So Patreon for everybody knows is a paid service that you can get content from people. A lot of like journalists use it and, you know, they're publishing articles and stuff. Well, he has a Patreon site where he charges either $7 a month or $15 a month to subscribe and get his stock picks or his crypto picks or whatever. He'll market, whatever. And it tells you on the Patreon site, how many subscribers he has. For his $15 a month one, the last time I looked, he had 1,500 subscribers, okay? So $15 times 1,500, that's $22,000 a month that he makes on Patreon. That doesn't include YouTube. That doesn't include any other, whatever he gets from anywhere else. All you need is 1,500 people and you would be incredibly wealthy. So, I mean, it's all perspective and understanding. You don't have to have millions of followers. You just need to find your niche and you need to focus on that and do your best there. I mean, that's great advice for the W2 Prison Break show. People looking to get out of their jobs. I mean, here's a guy who, and I know who you're talking about because I've seen him. There's nothing flashy about it, but he's providing a ton of value. He's clearly an expert. And I always tell people, look at what you already know. Like you don't have to go learn some new skill. Like the knowledge lives within you. Deliver it, share it, add value. And then again, if you could drive people to something like that, a subscription model, you're good to go. I don't know. I think for most people, $20,000 a month. Would be, enough, would be enough. Would be enough to get out yeah, to get out of their okay. to get out I mean, of their job, right? Yes. So. Yeah. If you want to get out from underneath your W two, and that's the great thing about what the internet. And I'm a big crypto person too. In that, not crypto as far as like Dogecoin, but just blockchain technology, what it's going to mean to the rest of the world, and the access of eliminating middleman and costs and all that kind of stuff that comes along with it. But the internet itself has created this environment where everybody's an expert at something, right? I mean, it's something you're great at something, right? You're not terrible at everything in life. So find what that thing is. And odds are, whatever it is that you're great at, you probably have a pretty good passion for it. And if you do take that and share that knowledge with people, because it's no different than I hire a plumber to come to my home to fix my toilet, not because, and when I pay him 300 bucks or 500 bucks or whatever it is that I'm paying him, it takes him 30 minutes to fix the toilet. Okay. I'm not paying him $300 an hour. I'm paying him $300 for his 20 years of experience and knowing what it takes to do that in 30 minutes to get out the door. And if that guy was doing a podcast because I watched him, I was like, man, I'm probably going to go look it up and be like, Hey, what's he got to say about this? Like, how do I compare? You're going to be an expert on something and people want information and YouTube and, and the internet has created this world where we were talking about our kids earlier. I've told my daughter and my son, I've got money saved for college. If you want to go to college, you let me know. We're going to make it happen. Absolutely. But if you don't think college is the route for you and you're not going to be an engineer or a doctor or a you know lawyer or some type of professional degree, well, then let's go start a business and I'll help you do that. 
Okay. Because the freedom that information and people that you have access directly to customers these days that you've never had in the history of mankind, that's what you want to take advantage of. If you don't want to work for somebody and be beholden to another company or another human being for the rest of your life, go start your own thing and do it while you're young, as soon as you can, because as soon as you have kids, as soon as you get married and you have responsibilities, it's really hard to break out of that W2 makes it really, really tough because you have people that are beholden to you. But if you can start early, if you can find your passion and just figure out how to make money with it, there's a lot of opportunities out there. Awesome. That is some gold advice right there. You are well on your way to parent of the decade there, Mike. <laughs> we'll see. Hey, they're all science experiments. We'll see how it works <laughs> out. I don't know. My kid could be blowing up federal buildings one day. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> this has been great, Mike. As we wrap up here, again, we went in a lot of different directions. You gave uh, your insight on the market. Then we talked a little about how to make money. So really cool stuff here. I think the listeners are going to enjoy this one. Before we wrap up, anything that maybe you wanted to share that I didn't get to ask? Any final thoughts? No, just what we've already said is I'm a big believer in the life is a constant, you know, get up every day. I Again, tell my kids because they hate me because I just am always like, did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know this? But there's another guy I love, David Goggins, who's this ultra marathon runner, had millions of injuries, all these kind of things, but just never quits. He's hilarious too, by the way, in his own way. But there's a phrase that he had mentioned one time, which is embrace the suck, right? Like every single day when I coach my football players, I would tell them this, this hot outside. I'm like, do you guys have to go to school tomorrow? Who has to go to school tomorrow? I'll raise their hand. I got to go to school. I'm like, if you don't want to go to school tomorrow, can you not go to school tomorrow? And they're like, well, not really, unless my mom, but you know, at some point I'm going to have to go again. Okay. So no matter what, when you wake up tomorrow, you're going to have to go to school. You don't have a choice. Okay. So if you look at your life that same way every day is like, I'm going to have to get up tomorrow. I'm going to have to go to work. I'm going to have to fight through the struggle of what I'm doing. And it's just what it is. And every day it's going to be that. And you have to learn to embrace that because it's a good thing. Like that's a good thing. The struggle, what is it on iron makes it sharper. I don't know what the saying is, but it's the more you embrace the idea that the destination, you might never reach that destination, but you're always going to fight through the struggle of getting there. And that's the true reward of all this stuff. Then you're going to figure out a way to have success. It's going to happen. You don't have to wish for it. You don't have to hope for it. You just have to get up and keep going every single day. It's not going to stop. The day it stops is the day you die. So don't quit. Don't let things frustrate you. Just keep moving forward. It doesn't mean you can't have emotions and get upset about stuff. It just means you got to get past it and keep going because tomorrow's a new day and hopefully it's a better one. Awesome. Great way to end it. Mike, thanks for being on. I learned a lot. I took a bunch of notes and I look forward to having you on someday. And this was uh, really good. I'm, I'm glad we did this. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. I really appreciate it, man. This was great. We'll reciprocate here soon. I'll have you on mine. Awesome. Look forward to that. Everyone make it a great day. I had a lot of fun with that conversation with Mike. I hope you enjoyed it as well. If you did find it to be entertaining, if you found the information to be valuable, we went kind of in a lot of different directions after we talked about whether or not it's a good time to buy a house. Can you afford to buy a house? Can you buy a house right now? Share, share with somebody, share with a friend because they're probably asking the same question too. I appreciate you. I appreciate you tuning in every single week and I hope to see you next week as well.